1: Thank you so much for talking to us and listening to us this past year. Our audience has grown way beyond what we had expected when we started on this journey. If you like what we do, please consider rating us and writing a review on the platform you use to listen to high theory. Many thanks in advance. Welcome to High Theory. Thanks so
0: much for having me, Kim. Thank you for coming. Uh,
1: today, I am here with Hannah Zevin, who is going to tell us about teletherapy. Hannah, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners?
0: Kim, my name is Hannah Zevin. I teach at UC Berkeley in the departments of history and English. And I've just published a book called The Distance Cure, A History of Teletherapy uh, on MIT Press this summer. It has a weird A weird purple cover that I love uh, with a telephone cord, like 1976, circa 1976, crossing the book.
1: Amazing.
0: What the heck is teletherapy? There's a short answer and a long answer. And I'm playing with both in this book and in my wider work. The short answer is teletherapy is forms of therapy that occur over telecommunications devices. That's the most sort of narrow answer. And it's certainly correct. Uh, In my book, I widen out from that kind of stodgy and rigorous uh, both uh, answer to think of all forms of therapy that are happening over distance, where technology is aiding in a clinical relationship to bridge that distance. So one of the first things I say in my book is that all therapy is mediated. If you're in the room with your shrink, it's mediated. If you're in the room with your patients, it's mediated. And that mediation is always there and thus it's actually a third. So we think of therapeutic relationships as dyadic, me and you, but actually it's me and you and media always. So, teletherapy is that triad, the patient, the therapist, and media, where distance is motivating some kind of overt mediation that will allow us to cross that chasm. In our pandemic moment, right? People are like, Zoom therapy. Okay, that's Mm -hmm. teletherapy, or an app for my iPhone, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Any of the big corporations that are Mm -hmm. doing this, fine. Uh, And all of that is teletherapy. My book starts with Freud's letters, which Freud used to do his own analysis, right? He was an analytic patient. And that analysis happened via letter writing because the analyst figure is living in Berlin and he's living in Vienna. So there's an epistolary analysis. uh, And Freud also used the letter to analyze other patients uh, Mm -hmm. who were not able to come into his consulting room in Vienna, or the suicide hotline, which, you know, emerges as a form of care in the 1950s, a really radical form of care, because it automatically thinks of anonymity as central, very different from a traditional therapeutic frame, but it also is on the phone, it's free, it's serial, and it's offered by peers, not experts. Broadcasts, you know, both in World War II and in Algeria, and coming in, uh, live from Los Angeles in the 1980s, right? With these kind of, or Esther Perel now. All of these different forms of mediated therapy are central to thinking about how we relate over distance. What are the litmus tests of a kind of telepresence for intimacy in the widest sense right both meaning the violence of intimacy and its pleasures and its securities and its help and care
1: are there podcasts that show up in your thinking about teletherapy?
0: the second chapter of the book is called mass intimacy so the book is organized around by chronology different kinds of intimacy that are being thought about and hosted in these strange uh configurations of patient therapist and media um the second chapter is all about broadcasting, which then bends back towards our contemporary moment where, yes, not only uh, is Esther Perel doing a kind of real therapeutic broadcasting where there's a patient, uh, usually two, right, couples therapy, and Esther Perel, the kind of icon, disseminating some kind of helping knowledge or advice, right, to mm-hmm. us, the listener, uh, or Orna Goralnik now on TV, same configuration with couples on Showtime. But there are all these other kinds of therapeutic broadcasts as well that are now being hosted in the podcast form. And I, yeah, I definitely talk about what they might be up to with a kind of pseudo-transference at distance. On the one hand, it has to be specific enough to count for whoever's actually in the room, but it has to be kind of general enough and uh, elicit and solicit identification from whomever. Happens to be listening.
1: Yeah. And I think people often listen to podcasts while they're doing daily tasks that they wouldn't sort of let anyone else into while they're washing the dishes or like while they're not being their public selves.
0: I like that because it's also a space of like asking the thing at distance to keep us company with drudgery, right? So dishes are to me, that's a kind of a, uh, or folding laundry, right? These tasks that are repetitive, they're part of reproductive labor. And, you know, then you're also receiving couples therapy for someone else at the same time. I like, I like this as the kind of total scene. How do I use teletherapy? Uh, The reason I offered all of those different arrays of kinds of care that are being configured in that thing we're just going to call teletherapy is that it's not really a super session narrative where the letter gave way to broadcasting, gave way to the crisis hotline, gave way to, in my book's order, chatbots gave way to, you know, e-therapy and and internet-based therapy. Like, you know, and we haven't stopped talking to each other face-to-face either. I mean, people didn't even stop during the pandemic, truth be told. Some, most, but not everyone, for various reasons. So it really depends. And that was something I was so fascinated by as I continued to elaborate this critical history, was to see that actually teletherapy is not in the shitty, like, late-stage capitalist way only about customization, but also about trying to figure out a way to deal with distance in a way that can actually give on to new forms of relating that are precisely what the patient might need or can tolerate. So again, that idea of the suicide hotline with anonymity, like if anonymity were crucial to you or to one for a whole host of reasons, well, the hotline still would suggest itself. And in fact, uh, the book opens with the aftermath of Trump's 2016 election, where hotline calls spiked where there was something about speaking to a stranger, speaking at distance, speaking uh, anonymously for all kinds of reasons that were was really important in that moment of national turmoil. Conversely, if you were lucky enough to be in therapy at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, you probably use their teletherapy by just flipping to Zoom or FaceTime, right? A kind of underthought emergency gesture. So Mm -hmm. it just completely depends. But there are so many different examples of people variously using this large, we're going to just call it a technique uh, in all its little minorities.
1: Do you think you can elaborate on that bit about customization and how it's different from the sort of shitty late-stage capitalist version?
0: Teletherapy now is most frequently associated with either... I'm in a pandemic, so my therapist and I meet on Zoom, right? Mm -hmm. It's an emergency measure. Maybe I end up liking it better. Maybe I hated it the whole time, but it's what's happening. And Mm -hmm. I'm contending with that in my therapeutic relationship that I insist is a triad, right? The technology, the mediation is always there. It's which kind and how obtrusive. But across its long history, teletherapy is more like the emergency room of mental health care rather than this high-end, if we're talking about cost, Uh, And class, you know, one to one treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's adjunctive, it's to the side. I call teletherapy therapies shadow form. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's one thing that my book tries to do is retell the history of clinical psychology across the long 20th century from the point of view of the shadow form, uh, because it allows us to see many other kinds of patients and many other kinds of care. Than the traditional narrative will give us because it was happening to the side or in the shadow or in the margin so part of that is about communities caring for themselves and figuring out you know these questions of how to convene a scene of care that would be safe welcome safer more welcome right useful and usable which is that customization bit and almost always for free Right. I'll just underline that when money has been such a central part of and contentious element of how therapeutic care has always functioned, especially in the U.S. context, but not only. Whereas now also part of the way that these new teletherapy apps, which is the other thing people commonly associate the word teletherapy to like BetterHelp, like Talkspace, are working is that they're also claiming this kind of customization of therapeutic experience. We will get you the person you most want to work with via algorithm. We will be able to offer you therapy whenever it's convenient, it's expedient, it's frictionless. And anyone who's worked with any form of therapy knows you cannot offer a frictionless therapy, really. Yeah. even when you claim it even when it's designed to be so it cannot be right then it's then we would call it something else a different kind of experience yeah. so that kind of customization has come back with this kind of return of the repressed you know techno capital moment And also just, you can see it in the the marketing, right? Talkspace is just one example. Their advertising is therapy for all, right? And so it it takes this kind of democratization language that is actually truly sort of meted out and borne out in the experience of certain other early teletherapy experiments and takes it on when really it's just remediating expensive one-to-one private practice therapy hosted on an app. And lastly, its customization efforts apparently fail, you know, according to many consumer sort of driven uh, mainstream journalists, you know, think pieces on the future of teletherapy.
1: How will teletherapy save the world?
0: (laughs) Well, it can't, right? There are moments where teletherapy has obviously saved individuals. And, you know, those are some of the more moving stories in this book. Therapy in general can save individuals. You know, save is a strange word. It comes bearing all kinds of New Testament, you know, kind of uh, weight. The problem with therapy always is that it cannot scale to take care of societal ill at that level. Because therapeutic theories and frames have in general, not totally, but dominantly been invested in psychic reality rather than external reality, been interested only in the individual or the small group. And of course, this has been a major question, which is how to, you know, this has been a, a driving question of critical theory. It's been a driving question of, you know, what is a psychoanalysis against individuation? What is a psychoanalysis in relationship to revolutionary thought, whether that's Marxist thought or black study or their intersection, but a therapy, whether tell or not, is not going to save the world. I think the kinds of things that get closer to saving more people are these real, you know, so not the world, are these really, I'm just not the world, but are these really creative, historically wise and situated? Uh, Attempts to reconfigure the consulting room, whether or not technology is explicitly involved, right? I'm going to keep saying that mediation is always going to be there. Whether they're teleclinics or they're real clinics, right, that are trying to think about that relationship between internal and external reality, between the psyche and materiality, uh, between uh, lived experience at the individual level and at the collective level. Then, now, and to come. And plenty of psychoanalysts uh, have been very invested in that question at times in the past and now and elsewhere, but not here and also here again uh, in the United States context. And so I think that that's the direction in the general psi fields and the psi disciplines we have to push uh, towards, you know, abolitionist psychiatry towards uh, abolishing the fee for psychiatry for reconfiguring all kinds of, you know, social services. So following someone's work like Dorothy Roberts, it's not just literal one to one therapy, but also all of the social services that come to the family, that come to the home, that come to the individual, Uh, following someone like Liat Ben Moshe, it's also elder care, right? I think we conceive of therapy as this very narrow, like two adults in in a room, but there are all these different places that it really goes and travels to. And then I can just end by saying my favorite, maybe it's such a weird thing to claim. One of my favorite quotes uh, that for me, especially in the last several years, has just continued to deepen its resonance Comes from the psychoanalyst uh, Wilfred Bion, which is a he when he makes this remark, he is doing elder care with terminal patients, mm-hmm. and someone asks him kind of snidely, like, "Why are you doing psychoanalysis with them?" And he says, kind of offhandedly, "Well, we have to make life as if life is as yet to come," and I think that there are many tools in this world for making life as if life is as yet to come, and one of them is this theory of mind when practiced in a certain way this theory of mind being therapy or? and sort of n- not all therapy but right a kind of more radical set of strains of psychoanalysis that that start with Freud and and have had many beautiful radical afterlives since
1: I feel like that was such a beautiful note to end on, but I have so many questions. Can I ask you my questions anyways? Okay, so um, just tell us what is abolitionists psychoanalysis?
0: Yeah, I mean, so again, there are are many people who are working at the intersection of how psychoanalysis across its longer history and in the present, but not just psychoanalysis, right? All of the sci-fields are deeply intertwined with upholding systemic racism, white supremacy, but also specifically are intertwined with the carceral state and policing. And so though reinvigorated for all the obvious reasons around the uprisings two years ago, there have been, uh, you know, longstanding from Fanon onward, right? These, these uh, theories, but not just theories, activities of fomenting for kind of abolitionist psychoanalysis, psychiatry generally. Um, And then there are really specific, concrete, uh, totally non-abstract, you know, places of agitation, removing police from doing wellness, so-called wellness checks that end in death, Mm -hmm. right, which is a a major thing that I've written about coming out of this history, right, where the suicide hotline, in essence, is set up so that it's a space away from psychiatry and from the carceral Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, in the 1950s, homosexuality is in the DSM-3. And in many states, it's illegal and and remains criminalized right for a long duration. Uh, So queer callers to the suicide hotline were able to avoid uh, going to psychiatrists, which they often just wouldn't do, Mm -hmm. and to also navigate care away from the eyes of the police uh, who are raiding uh, many of their you know important sites of community not just not just gay bars where the suicide hotline was being disseminated literally uh, but but beyond that and that that stays really true
1: thank you so much for coming and talking with us
0: thank you so much for having me and thank you for listening
1: to high theory.